Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaker who's making his mark on the landscape of contemporary horror. As a writer and director, he unleashed the short film Don't Be Afraid of the Light a few years ago, and he recently contributed to the upcoming December holiday horror anthology. Behind the scenes, he's worked in post-production on such films as Get Out, Ouija, Origin of Evil, and The Purge, Election Year. Please welcome to the show, writer, director, and so much more, Jason Rostovsky. Hello, Hello. thank you. Welcome, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Uh, I have a feeling that we're going to have a lot to dig into on this landscape of horror, but uh, why don't we just start things the same way I start every show, with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Yeah. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to it? Uh, but why horror? Yeah, I think for me, it's always had to deal with this uh, like extreme existential crisis I've had since like day one. Um, <laughs> I, I attribute that to being born uh, Jewish, where you kind of come into a world with a lot of inherited trauma that you're trying to deal with that you don't know you have. Um, and then you grow up around a bunch of people that kind of just assume at any moment uh, you're probably going to die. Um, and so it's this like sort of weird um, upbringing and you don't quite know how to deal with that or how to deal with death or the thought of other people dying because you're like five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you see that in something like film or read it in a book, um, I think subconsciously I was preparing myself for um the dark horrors of the world and how uh, how I was going to deal with death by really digging into that type of um, experience and story and film. And so uh, it was easy for me because I grew up watching gateway shows, I guess, like Charmed or Buffy that had a lot of horror and a lot of those elements. And then I think that kind of caught my focus and attention and led me to more real horror films that kind of helped me process what I was dealing with that like I didn't even know I was dealing with and so for me it's always been about facing that trauma and learning how to be entertained by it or make light of it so that I could deal with it and I think as a kid when you experience a lot of that early on or hear about stories that are really awful early on I think that you kind of grasp at anything that helps you understand that. And to me, horror was obviously uh, a direct exploration of that. And so it just it I think I I enjoyed having fun with death because it helped me not be so afraid of it. It's interesting because in this discussion, I'm really fascinated by the idea that your draw to horror does uh, have this kind of integral tie to your Jewish background. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I'm not Jewish, but knowing what I know about the uh, the the Jewish history, there is a lot of horror woven in through yeah. through history connected with the Jewish people. And I'm wondering, is is there sort of a, a general generational trauma that like is instantly instilled upon you growing up in that culture? Yeah. And some of it's behavioral. And then a lot of it, too, is you there. There are sort of um, genetic inherited trauma that you get that it you know the joke is that we're all anxious you know it's this mm-hmm. sort of Seinfeld thing that we're always anxious about something and a lot of that is biological and inherited from your parents but then you just my grandmother was a holocaust survivor and my uh, my dad 
grew up with that. And so you sort of adapt these behaviors from them where you're kind of always assuming you're going to have to pick up and run at any moment or you're not going to have access to, uh, you know, necessary things to live or be happy. And so you're kind of always on edge um, about everything. And so it is something that kind of gets trained or you learn from growing up in a household with people that have been around something as horrible as the Holocaust. Um, and so you learn these weird sort of behaviors that then also have this feedback loop with your emotions and your um, anxieties. And so you sort of, by the time you're, you know, even a teenager, you've built like a, a nuclear reactor of anxiety within your head and you're just uh, providing, uh, I don't know, uh, a lot of energy through that. That's sort of how you operate. So there, at least for me, it was a lot of growing up in a household um, that was very much influenced by that and that history and that background. And so even if it's subtle or it's not something that you address or talk about all the time, it's kind of just embedded in everything that, you know, your grandparents do and therefore your parents do and therefore, you know, everything you do. Right. And what has uh, been a, a topic of discussion in the last few weeks. So it's interesting that it's continuing into this episode in a very different way, of course, because like when we we think about these movies, as much as we obsess over them and love them, uh, it is, of course, still fiction as opposed to atrocity and horror of the real world, which right. we must take in a very grave and serious way. Uh, last week, um, when I had Roz Dresferlez on, we actually talked about how one thing that uh, the new Halloween definitely got right was this idea of how trauma is passed on. And we don't really see that in horror movies a lot. And kind of like the joke is, I mean, like you'll, you'll have the thing where it's like, you know, Sydney is now damaged in Halloween or a Scream 2, but like she still went to college and is in the theater department and things. Your life would not be quite that easy a year later. Right. Um, and what is really interesting about this narrative, and I think very factual about this narrative, is that true horror when it affects people does not just affect those people in the generation after them it continues down into the generations and this idea as you said of the, of the anxiety and the anxious stereotype uh when i i think those tendrils are all still attached the idea like we always need to run right and that's interesting to me like because i think that true horror never really goes away if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's something that I always think about. I mean, because there's this sort of escapism in horror films where everything's reduced down to a single motivation, and that's, you know, not to die, which I've always related to that goal. Um, <laughs> and so you see that, and you get that for 90 minutes or, you know, two hours, and then you don't really see what's after that. And like you're saying with Scream 2, yeah, she's sort of traumatized, but it's sort of the same thing in every sequel after that, where right. it's like, oh, she's a little bit messed up from the events of the previous one, but she's still living a life. And I think that, like you said, the new Halloween did well was really show the effects of going through something where you're, you know, your life is at risk and you go through hell and back and you come out the other side and it's not just, oh, I'm stronger now, you're different and you're changed and for better or worse. But I think that that's something I've always thought about when I watch a horror film. Like you don't really think like, wait, but what happens to them after? Right. Like if Friday the 13th had just ended with her, uh, you know, at the end, 
barring her getting pulled into the boat by Jason, like what does happen to her after that? Or what happens to the people who all of their friends have been murdered and you're the only one left? And I, I think that I think that that's a similar kind of um trauma that gets left with you. Of course. And I think that sequels tend to be the Hollywood idea of of what these stories would be because we want them bigger and bloodier and blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's the box office draw. That's the popcorn in your face. It's everything that we want out of the air quotes entertainment. But it's sort of, that's it. It's like Halloween is always Halloween. The next movie is never November 1st. Right. Because that's probably the worst day. I mean, obviously the day that the incident happens is awful. But the next day when you have to face the reality of it, that's the horror, I think. And like, I think that would be the unbearable movie. That's your like, your can like art house film. It's like, just like Laurie Strode walking around Haddonfield in a fucking days on November 1st. Some some art house sort of uh, alcoholic movie, something like that. Jim Jarmusch's November 1st. (laughs) Um, So what I find engaging about this uh, kind of avenue into why horror is uh, it's in a way a discussion of otherness, cultural otherness. And a lot of times, especially with the nature of the show, when people discuss their uh, avenue into horror, especially with relation to their queer identity, it's similar in the way that we find that sense of otherness and catharsis in it, whether we relate to the Laurie Strodes or we, we relate to like the outsider status of like the Frankenstein monster. Um, do you find that there is also a, a horror connection for you with with your queer identity? Or? Yeah. yeah, I think that both my Jewish and my queer story follow a very similar path. Um, I mean, I've been Jewish longer than I've known I was gay. So it's sort of something that I think is uh, ingrained in me deeper. But I, I do I do attribute them to a very similar experience i think that they hold the same value as an otherness and they hold a similar value as you know in an oppressed community in an oppressed culture and so i think that i think they're sort of like the the helix of me feeling like an other and i think that they're a big part of why i'm interested in horror films or i relate to them as well and uh, you know most of my horror taste falls more in line with things that um you know, like a Romero film or something that's a bit escapist, but it, it has that sort of Mathesonian quality where you're the only person left. Right. And I think that was a big fantasy for me as a child, this idea of being in something like The Last Man on Earth or Dawn of the Dead, where everything is just brought down to you and survival. And you don't have to worry about society or culture or having friends or going to school or anything like that that just felt so terrifying as a kid, especially for somebody that fit into diff- you know, two different categories of being an other. Right. I only had to worry about myself. And I think there's something um, intriguing about the idea of also a smaller world where you you matter more when it's maybe a couple thousand people left and it's just down to you and and finding food or finding water or, or you know, again, this idea of just not dying right. and it being boiled down to its simplest terms of a life. Well, and I think that it's very uh, key that of all of the films and filmmakers that you could zero in on when having that discussion, you would go to George Romero. Right. Because Romero understood, I think, uh, the the idea of, of zombie horde in in the grander sense, represents 
just the larger mob against the one. Right. The idea that in the original Night of the Living Dead, you have, uh, you know, this this whole civil rights parallel where even though the black guy's the hero, the mob outside still ends up defeating him. And it's 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 a sad, scary hook to the movie. But that's, you know, the, the zombie has always been really well utilized, especially by Romero, to point out the dangers of a mob mentality and the larger scope. And uh, I, I can see the desire to want to be by yourself when <laughs> right. taking that into account. Yeah, it's something that's always appealed to me. And and I think I, I would always quote Romero as probably my most iconic or my hero, if you will, as mm-hmm. a filmmaker. And I think that it's because he could always boil the world down to a smaller part of itself and then use that to sort of have wish fulfillment in a way. I mean, Dawn of the Dead, albeit, you know, a comment on consumerism and sort of this this paradise being a planned obsolescence, still had, I think, to me, some of the most enjoyable parts in what would be, you know, a horror scenario. Right. And even Night of the Living Dead, although they were fighting constantly the whole time, there was still this sort of safety within that house that it fell apart because of how they interacted with each other. But you could relate to Ben and say, wow, I think I would be Ben in that situation. And it's sort of that idea that like, oh, I could be the hero of something. Right. Or I could be somebody that matters and makes a difference in a situation like this. But I think even with that, there's still an otherness to it because you look at these sort of group movies or even the remake of Dawn of the Dead and there's still maybe four people you pick out and you're like, yeah, I'd be that person. And they're always the person who's facing the most um, sort of uh, opposition with Ben, who's arguably the smartest and most put together out of all of them, is still... Uh, meeting a lot of obstacles with them and nobody can agree with him and nobody will listen to him. And so, yeah, I think that I think I view it as that, like there's almost turning my otherness or my separation from everybody else into a positive fantasy in a way. Well, and it's a great expose on otherness, too. And I think that when we discuss otherness in horror, it's usually sort of in relation to the idea. Like I said, the Frankenstein monster because he's misunderstood or the creature from the Black Lagoon, where we actually look at the monster because the monster in some ways is another. Or you look at someone I referenced, Laurie Strode. Laurie Mm -hmm. Strode just wants to be the popular girl. And even though she's friends with these other girls, she doesn't feel like she fits in. And so we can relate to that in anotherness way. But there's this this thing that you highlighted that doesn't get discussed enough in relation to otherness and horror, especially in a zombie narrative, that when the majority of the world is now dead, otherness is whoever is left. Right. And uh, then on top of that, when you discuss Ben and Night of the Living Dead, that's like micro otherness. We are othering other. And it's so it's a powerful statement in the way that I don't even know Romero thought he was doing. (laughs) But you're right. Like you sitting at home feeling other, whether you're, uh, you know, Jewish or gay or a person of color or a different religion from the majority or whatever. And you see it's like, okay, now they need to band together, but they're not even listening to this guy because he's different from them. It's just it's harrowing, but it's also compelling storytelling. Yeah. And I think it gives you almost a hopefulness as well. I mean, despite the total end of that movie, he is the only person in that house that makes it through the night alive. And it's because he's another because he thinks differently than everybody else and he behaves differently than everybody else. And you see that and you say, 
oh, wow, like I feel different than everybody else. But for him, it, it worked out for the better. Right. Again, up until the, the very, very end. end. Well, uh, I mean, and that very end is like your Twilight Zone punch. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite Romero movie that's not one of the dead movies? Not one of the dead movies. Yeah. Um, Just for, for fun. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's probably... Well, it's too similar. I would say The Crazies, but it's it's so close. It's still a pandemic movie. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. still pretty much. <laughs> I um, But other than a pandemic movie that Romero did, um, I mean, that would leave me with like Martin or Monkey Shines. I mean, I'm kind of just a nerd for it. So like, I love Monkey Shines. Yeah. I feel like Monkey Shines is a Romero movie that doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah. So is Knight Riders, but like for obvious reason. Um, I also really like Knight Riders. Yeah. Uh, when I was living in Pittsburgh, Romero, of course, like, like at any time there was a theater, you know, event, they would always screen Romero film. Yeah. And Knight Riders was always the one that was screened the least. So yeah. whenever it would show, I would be like, they're in full force, ready to go. And, you know, you drag friends along who only saw horror movies. I'm like, well, this isn't a horror movie, but they're jousting knights who ride motorcycles and Ed Harris is in it. Yeah, so, it's like, basically the equivalent of a horror movie, but for whatever this other genre of it was. It's really its own genre. Yeah, too. I think it's one of, I, well, I think it was one of his favorite films as well. Like, I, I've read articles about him just being like, I don't understand why more people don't love this movie also. I think it's great. It's lengthy. That's the only thing. Yeah. It's a very long movie. But if you like it, yeah, it's great. Uh, so other than Romero, when you were growing up, was there a movie that you remember was like the moment that brought you into the world of horror? Yeah, it's real funny. Um, I The first horror film that I I remember seeing and, and knowing that it was a horror film, I think, was also an important thing. I started super young. It was Blair Witch. So I was six, mm-hmm. I think, when it came out. And I really, really, really wanted to see it. I got to be a part of that whole believing, is this like a real movie or not? And right. Also, being six, you're like, is this fucking real? Like, (laughs) what is happening? Um, And I, my parents were hesitant for obvious reason. And I went through like a whole campaign, basically, of like why I deserve to see this movie and why I would be okay. I think they were worried that I would just be up awake for the rest of my life and terrified. And so I... They released like a novelization. I think it was like Oni Press or something, but there was uh, a graphic novel of it that came out around the time that it was released. And so I made a deal with them. Like if I could read this novel or this graphic novel and be fine and I wasn't scared, you would have to let me see the movie because like therefore I prove like I'm not a wuss. Right. And so I read it and obviously I was traumatized and horrified, but (laughs) I lied about it. And so they let me see the movie. And so Blair Witch was my first like real horror film knowing this is a horror film. This is going to scare the shit out of me. I shouldn't be seeing this. Um, But yeah, and then that traumatized me, but I loved it. And I think that's a big part of it is that Starting so young, I, I kind of started to fall in love with this this trauma you get after a horror right. film. And I think it helped me focus that attention and anxiety on something else while also processing it. Well, there's something uh, delicious, too, about the idea of I shouldn't be seeing this. Yeah. That's a sentence that I hear a lot. Yeah. And I think about it as well. like Because I remember when I first uh, started engaging with horror movies, uh, the realization that these are not the movies that are normally, you know, being shown on TV or like, you know, if it it was a more deep cut like that would play on Monster Vision or USA Up All Night, this is not what's playing at the multiplex. And I became obsessed with the idea of there's this other world 
of things that feel like a little naughty and a, a, like maybe uh, I shouldn't be seeing them. And I was like, yeah, that's those are the movies I want to watch. Yeah. And, and again, like to that point, I think that helps you understand your otherness as well. I mean, I think everybody who's a horror fan and grew up a horror fan or or has been for any period of time has felt otherness just by being a part of that community. Yeah. But I mean, like, you know, we run in the same horror circles. And so it's there is like a, a family to it as well and a community to it, just as there is with being gay and being Jewish and all of that, that right. like you become a part of this other group. And yeah, for being a young kid, having access to something that like, you know, it's rated R, like you shouldn't even be able to watch this on your own. But but I can because I have a VHS or a DVD of it. Right. There was something that was so enticing about that. And, and I think it. I think it makes you feel more mature as well, which I think helps you face those fears. Like, I, I feel like I'm doing something that an adult is doing, which is watching this movie. And if I'm not too terrified by it, like, maybe I am stronger than I feel. Right. And I think that was a big part of it as well. Like, I could watch Blair Witch. And if I can watch Blair Witch and still go to bed at night, like, there's there's something empowering about that for at least a six-year-old. Maybe even like me now where I'm like, <laughs> well, I didn't get scared by that movie. There's got to be something working inside me. Do you still have those moments where you head into a movie and you think to yourself, this might be the one that terrifies me? No, I think that I've been desensitized, but I think that I think that was part of the goal. I right. mean, I think that plays into this going to something and watching something and knowing you're going to leave scared or um, reinvigorated by this fear. And that wore off uh, when I was a teenager, maybe. I had like a good 10 years of doing that. And every once in a while, like hereditary creeped me the fuck out. And there were moments in that where I was was a little scared. And even going home, I kind of thought like, great, there's going to be like a fucking Tony Collette up in the corner of my ceiling (laughs) chopping her head off. Um, I mean, I wish Tony Collette just appeared in my house. If that's how I died, right? I would just be so happy. Just, just possessed Tony Collette. That could kill me. Yeah, I would need the article, the obit, to read a very specific. Yeah, way, yeah. Be like murdered by Tony Collette, comma star of Muriel's wedding. <laughs> like I, I would want to her pick, whole filmography. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make it clear that this is the woman who murdered me. Yeah. Uh, you know, he even liked Connie and Carla. Yeah, yeah or we'll like not it. be pressing charges uh, <laughs> post mortem. Exactly. Um, so you see Blair Witch at six, and you're sort yes. of like off. To the races, yep. as as it were. Uh, and you're engaging with these movies. As you said, it's sort of like the endurance of it all and right. like the passion of it all. Do you remember when you decided to move beyond just being a fan into, you know, this is something I want to do. I want to make these and be part of this. Yeah, it. I started sort of writing prose more so. And it, it started really young. I mean, to the point where my parents would get like, calls from my school and well we were you know we were doing journal time and he's writing scream fan fiction about people getting gutted in fourth grade is there something wrong with him um more so on the jewish connection my bar mitzvah theme was horror movies oh my god that's amazing it was awesome i i wish i still had some of the things but there were like these little centerpieces and they were all like 
uh, sort of paintings of different favorite horror films of mine at the So age. your parents were cool with this. Yeah, clearly. they yeah. were super into it. And I think it's because I liked animals and they were like, he can't be a serial killer. Like, he might want to be a vet. Like, right. he has three dogs and guinea pigs and they're not dead. So, right. like, I think we're okay. So they justified it however they needed to. But, yeah, I was well supported in the, the horror aspect of my life by my parents and um, they championed that but I started writing really young but it was all just for fun or to take up time and then um, I really didn't move toward screenwriting or filmmaking until um, I'd say late high school really I had always kind of been more interested in in science or sort of going towards something that in my head was like, oh, I can make a real impact on the world or, right. you know, I can work in genetics and biology and things like that. And I was always going to have writing as sort of a, a side passion or a hobby. And then once I realized like, oh, wait, there's like a whole career path for this and I can actually go to school for this right. and just do this. Um, I, I So I decided like around applying to colleges, like am I going to apply and go study science or am I going to apply to film school? And then I, I went with film school. And <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I applied for a bunch of screenwriting programs and that's primarily what I decided I, I wanted to do. And, um, and then I went to Chapman University and I think there I kind of realized like, oh, I don't suck too much at this. Like I'm going to try to make a life out of that. Right. Um, and then all my interest in science and things became more of the hobby and influenced some of the writing. But yeah, I started writing super young. And then I think screenwriting really came into form when I was applying to college and realized like you can actually theoretically get paid to do this and, right. and live off of it in some way. I mean, we're all we're all trying. Yeah, I'm still <laughs> I might be kicking my uh, my past younger self for thinking I could make money off of it. But. Um. I have to know, uh, how does one be a, a science hobbyist? Oh, uh, it starts with reading books on science and okay. then forgetting that was a hobby of yours because you're just, you know, so dead from writing. <laughs> uh, so you go to Chapman for screenwriting and then your trajectory, uh, you you end up in the industry. Like, how did, yeah. how did that happen? I got a little bit lucky. Um, followed by a bunch of hard work, but I I interned every semester and my final semester at Chapman, I interned at Blumhouse mm -hmm. and I was there in development. And when I graduated, uh, they let me continue to intern for just a little bit. And then I decided like, OK, I should try and go get a real job at another company since Blumhouse wasn't hiring. And then I think two weeks after I left my internship, I got a call saying there was an opening in post-production, um, which is where I, I had originally interviewed for an internship. I guess I had like seen a posting on Facebook or something about an opening in post-production. Um, and when I went to interview, they're like, but you write? Like maybe right. you should be in development. And so um, they knew me and they just knew that I was looking. And I had been at Blumhouse, I think, for like eight months or something like that, like a long semester. And so I just got a call and went in and um, got hired to be their uh, assistant to the post-production head 
for a while, and then I became a coordinator while there. So my first job was Blumhouse, and that was right out of college, pretty much. Right, and so I, uh, in the intro, I talked a little bit about that work in post-production, and some of the movies that you worked on in that world of post-production include movies like Get Out, yeah. and The Purge, Election Year, and Ouija, Origin of Evil. Uh, that's wild as a horror fan that you, out of college, are working on these movies that are huge. Yeah. And what was that like? It was a lot of fun. I mean, post-production is a lot more stressful for me, at least, mm -hmm. than working development is because it took sort of retraining my brain to operate on different levels and, and learning a whole bunch of new tools that I didn't totally understand right. going into it. And for listeners, what does the post-production process entail for, for you, like in a nutshell sort of way? As a coordinator? Yeah. Um. So you're sort of in it from the beginning in a way um, – I think Get Out was the last thing I worked on when I was there. And I was there, I think, just through like principal photography or something. Mm -hmm. And so you come on early to sort of plan like how many weeks of post something's going to be. You're part of hiring editors and finding assistant editors. And so you're kind of packaging this team. And Blumhouse was great about working with a lot of the same sound designers or colorists or editors that really just knew the Blumhouse space and knew horror and how to cut horror, which you eventually learn is a very sensitive science of of how to cut a scare or how to cut drama within right. horror. And so it was different than any other film I had really been around. But in post-production, you're essentially managing how post is going to function. So a movie starts shooting and you're getting dailies. And so you have to know where those dailies are going, how you're getting the card from set to a post-production facility, who's then going to go process those dailies and then upload them to a system like PIX. Right. And then that's going to then get dispersed to Jason Blum, the director, and maybe three other people who are going to have access to that, and then us. And so then we have to send those out and make sure everybody's watched them. And so even just from day one of shooting, even from the script of knowing like how many weeks we're going to have or who we should look at for hiring um, and and sort of how long it's all going to take, you're kind of just planning and then once shooting starts, you're making sure everybody gets dailies. And then you pretty much start cutting once they start shooting. And so the assistant editor will come and they'll they'll lay out, you know, all the footage and they'll start building sort of the 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 stream of it all. And then it's all the way through editing and multiple cuts. I dealt a lot with preview screenings. And so those like fun emails you get from Fandango or whatever about like free movie or those people who hand out flyers in front of the arc light to get you to come see a free <laughs> yeah. movie. Uh, those were people like, you know, we'd hire a service that would essentially go and recruit people to come see the first cut of something and they'd give notes. And so um, I we deal with that as well. And then you sort of deal with recrafting whatever story you need to recraft and right. post. And so all the way through editors, sound designers, composers, colorists, finishing, and then essentially, you know, your your due date, you ship that off to the distributor and then it's in a theater like the next week. It's wild because you're sort of involved in the DNA of a film yeah. the whole way through, but more in the blood, sweat and tears behind the scenes sort of way. Yeah. And it's got to be surreal then, too, for something like Get Out, which you're involved in the process from the beginning, from yeah. that printed page, to then watching the Academy Awards and seeing it win an Oscar. Like, that's got to be bizarre. In yeah. Some way. 
it, it was interesting. Like, I mean, I I was there up until I think principal principal photography ended, and so right. I wasn't I wasn't there during the actual cutting of it. Right. But seeing all this footage come in and seeing all this sort of raw, you know this could go either way right um material was interesting to then see the final product and then also see that win an oscar and so to see something go from pretty much just like particles to a a, a full award-winning you know child if you will like, right it, it was cool and and the same way with a lot of those movies you know you see it in pieces and then all of a sudden you see it as a full image and it's just wild what a lot of these editors do and um, you know, you get close with a lot of the editors and the directors are there for a lot of the post-process once they're done shooting. And so you you get to watch these people recreate their vision in a different way. And I think the most interesting part of post to me was being able to, um, I'm not going to say fix things because that's a death curse on something. If yeah, yeah, of course. You're it like, fix it in post. Yeah, yeah but to to rewrite a story or make something better and really elevate something in post-production, I think was the most interesting part to me. And I spent a lot of time or as much time as I could sitting in editor bays and watching them completely create a scene from pieces of another scene right. that they didn't shoot. And it just, it felt normal and natural and like nothing was amiss, even though they just sort of Frankenstein something together. And this whole time that you are at Blumhouse, you're also still writing. Yeah. And I know that you wrote short films and projects that other people directed. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at what point did you decide to direct yourself? Uh, I think I think it was I had written. So I'd written a couple things in college that I would have friends direct, which was a fun process. And, you know, you don't really have to do much more work beyond just the writing part of it. Yeah. And I had written a script that I had just for sort of the hell of it sent to a few screenwriting competitions and it seemed to sort of always land somewhere between like honorable mention and second place. And so I was like, okay, it can't be that bad if it's getting a bit of recognition. And I decided I wanted to try and shoot it. I think maybe a year or so after I wrote it, I was at Blumhouse and I was just, I think I had just been bit by this bug of watching all these directors come in right. and make movies and, and like have their vision come to life that I decided I wanted to try to do that for myself. And so I I did the Kickstarter thing and then um, I produced it with a couple different friends of mine and, and shot Don't Be Afraid of Light, which was um, the first thing that I directed. But I think it just came from being around it and watching a lot of people do something that, you know, I had thought would be cool, but right. I didn't really want to be a director. I just, I didn't know, um, I didn't know that I wanted to be, I guess. And so. But now you are. Yeah. And do you love it? It's fun. It's, it's, I will say each one has gotten more complicated, but easier. Right. And I think that having Don't Be Afraid of Light be my first film was the best thing I could have done because it was the most nightmarish, complicated, um, not horrible, but it was it was a lot. I think that it it really sort of um, killed me in a way. Just doing something that felt so much bigger than anything else I had ever done. It was a bunch of child actors and like a whole bunch of effects and a monster in a suit and VF. Like I, I think I just went too much too soon but 
I learned because I made every mistake I could have made on that film. Right. And I like I think I value that more than any other experience that I've had. And one of the things that you said when you were talking about Blumhouse mm-hmm. and watching kind of the editing take shape and how it can be very tricky, the editing of a horror scene, like just a beat different can yeah. make all of it can it can make something funny or it can make something scary or it can completely derail a scene. Did you take things that you learned watching the editing there to your own work? Yeah. Um, everything that I had learned from watching, uh, I'm going to do a, a shout out to Tim Alverson who cut the new Halloween, who was sort of always my, like I call him my post dad, um, <laughs> but I would just hang out in his bay and watch him do a whole bunch of crazy wizardry on films. Right. But I, I took everything that I had learned from post into that. And that I think applied to pre-production and writing and sort of, you catch on to what lines get dropped in the editing room or what moments get changed. And so sort of knowing what my instincts would be in the editing process and having that from the beginning helped me save a lot of time. We had a lot of production crises, so we lost a day of shooting essentially. And I had to think, how would I edit this together to come up with, you know, the five second bridge scene that I was going to need to make something work or, you know, we had to redo our, or recraft our ending before we shot it. And that all came from knowing, okay, how am I going to cut this? What can I do in post? I mean, we we created footage uh, again. Like w- there's this one shot in it where there are three characters in frame and we they're having a conversation and there's our lead is sort of off to the side, um, just sort of pondering something. And instead of that conversation, we needed it to just be her and we looped like the the left half of the screen um, without them in it and then just had her end play in it. And so we, we created footage basically right. out of nothing uh, that we needed to make our story work. And all of that I learned from Blumhouse and, and working in post-production and watching them do similar things. And what a valuable skill as a filmmaker, because not every filmmaker has that, where you can think about even in the pre-production, the post. Yeah. The idea that you can uh, conceptualize from beginning to end. And I think that, you know, that will be a very valuable skill, you know, from speaking as a filmmaker, that I, I don't do that always. I'll be on set and I'll just, I'll figure it out later. Right. But you, the death curse. yeah, certainly have, you know, the background where you had to think about that for other people's movies. Right. So, of course, you have to bring it to your own now. And that's awesome. Uh, I mean, I'm jealous. So it's a fun skill to have. Yeah. Although you, I do find myself in situations where I'm like, oh, I can, I can do that in editing, and then I've trapped myself and right. wait, no, I can't, and I should have done that in production or pre-production or script. Um, but it is, it, it's interesting because I started really only being interested in writing, and then I was like, oh, I guess I'll direct, and now. I, I tend to be heavily involved in the post process right? just because I know sort of what I like that I've seen or I've seen other people do that I think works. And so it has kind of gotten me into, you know, each version of the film, whether it's the script or how we're going to shoot it and then how it's going to finally be put together in the end. And so I I think that all of that, I know that all of that comes from Blumhouse and watching editors and directors problem solve from sort of every stage of the film. Well, from the writing to learning post to bringing that to your work as a director to your newest project, December Before Sundown. 
Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. Because uh, December, uh, I've talked about on the show before, I've directed a segment, written and directed a segment. Uh, Amalia, who was on before, has also done done a segment. And you all uh, contributed to this as well. And it is a holiday horror anthology uh, where 24 directors from around the world were selected to, you know, tell a tale of terror for the festive, frightful season. Uh, and yours uh, is, as far as I know, the only Hanukkah story. I believe so. I think it is the only uh, Jewish-themed and Hanukkah-themed one in the bunch of all the 25 or four. Um, but yeah, I I was sort of brought into it and I heard, oh, it's death not right. death miss or right. whatever that version would be. and. Um, there are a lot of times, and I think this year it is sort of going to be like a Christmaca where Hanukkah and Christmas are very close together. Right. And to me, that was something that appealed uh, as a director and, and like as a Jewish director where I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, like, I'll come in and I'll represent. And, right. Um, I think that a lot of that sort of came from, you know, growing up as a kid and everybody was pretty much celebrating Christmas and um you always kind of feel left out. And so I, I took a, a lot of that loneliness in it and sort of folded it into this other film. But yeah, I I was interested in bringing that different perspective to Death Sember, knowing that it's it's going to be a bunch of Christmas films and I want to be able to relate to that. But the only way for me to relate to Christmas is sort of from looking at it from the outside. Right. Well, uh, what I really loved uh, is that um, all of the LA-based directors, we had the opportunity to see each other's films. And I really, really like this. I, I, I enjoyed yours so much. One, because I work in the world of Christmas movies outside of horror as well. <laughs> right. And so there's something like, uh, it was just a breath of fresh air. I was like, oh, cool. This is like, you know, what is needed for this anthology? Because as you said, it's December uh, as a month does not belong to Christmas. Yeah. There's many other things going on. And it also, uh, you know, I, I don't want to s- say much because these are shorts and I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah. I think it's brilliantly curated. I, I, it's a, it's just, uh, it's a, a, a dose of energy the whole way through. Yeah. And what I really liked is it was, it made me start thinking about the fact uh that, that there should be more Hanukkah horror stories. Yeah. Because we've got like a whole run of Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night and, you know, all of these like Christmas horror movies. But are there, are, are we like running really low on the world of Hanukkah horror? Yeah, I think there's one coming out with Sid Haig sometime soon that I've heard about. But I I can only recall like maybe one other that I've heard of. And um, yeah, there's, there's none. There, I mean, there aren't a lot of, Jewish films really to begin with I'd say that the market for that is maybe the same size or smaller than like LGBT film and Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is or what's behind that but there's there's not a lot of cinema about it and especially not in horror I can't speak for why that is right um but I think that it's something that could be I mean they have there's so much mythology behind it all. And you think about the movies that do come out, it's it's usually a Holocaust or a World War II movie if it's right. sort of Jewish cinema in a way. Um, but 
I don't I, I don't think that we're limited to that in our stories. And, and I think that it should be expanded upon. When I like that you use the word mythology because before sundown, your segment in December yeah. uh, is rooted in the idea of myth. And uh, could you for listeners, uh, you know, obviously, again, no spoilers, but uh, maybe give us a, a, an overview of what the story is. Sure. Yeah. So it's these sort of three kids that are trying to get home from a Christmas party um, on the first night of Hanukkah and they're trying to get home before sundown. And one of the kids who's the younger brother of um, one of them thinks that there's sort of this like long lost myth that the reason in Jewish tradition, you're always supposed to be home before sundown on uh, holy days is because there's this sort of darkness or something that's out there that will come take children away. Right. And a big part of that to me was inspired by one not fully understanding even some of the own traditions that I followed or sort of subscribed to as a kid. Um, you're kind of just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that because everybody else is doing it. And you're taught that in Hebrew school or sort of on your way to your bar mitzvah, what you're supposed to do and mm-hmm. how you're supposed to behave. But I never felt like it was adequately explained to me. Right. And so I sort of took that misunderstanding as like uh, an open mythology of like, I don't really know why I'm doing this. So wouldn't it be fun if there was like a real sort of like, like long lost, deadly sort of answer to that? I kind of love that, though, because now, you know, once the movie comes out, uh Little Jewish kids can be like, this is why we have to be home yeah. by sundown. Yeah. There's a monster yeah. or something, you know. It made the most sense to me. I mean, like, <laughs> why else? But you're also the kid who had the horror bar mitzvahs. Yeah, so. of course. Yeah. <laughs> the horror bar mitzvah is what I will refer to it as. Yes. Um, but it just, it was something that I had never really thought about. That, oh, I, I would do all of, I had a bar mitzvah and I don't really know what that was about. Other than, you know, you're told this is when you become a man at right. 13. Um and you don't question that. And so I, this was sort of my way of, of questioning that and having it feel like it's bigger or different than just tradition, um, while also not totally being religious about it. Right. Which I thought was important as well that, you know, anybody can kind of relate to like, oh, religion is this whole super far beyond my understanding situation. Um, whereas like a monster isn't like that's something that I think everybody's like it exists because you can see it and it can kill you but I think there's something really cool about the place that um, storytellers and creators occupy for reasons like this I mean in addition to all the other things is the idea that there are things culturally and socially that we just sort of accept is true because we've always been told. Yeah. And we've even, as children, asked adults sometimes, the you know, why, and the answer is just because. Yeah. But now, you know, as a creator, we have the, you have the autonomy to say, why do I have to be home before sundown? Well, I'm just going to make up a reason to satisfy me because I've always wanted to know. But it then lends avenue to discussion of this. Like, well, maybe then somewhere there will be a scholar of, you know, Jewish history and religion that will be like, actually, we have to be home before sundown because X, Y, Z. But by telling the story, you're forcing people to think about it. And that's awesome. Yeah, there will be uh, hopefully several Googles uh, of it after. <laughs> and I, it was fun to me because... Um, I don't really think any of my friends that I sort of constantly see are Jewish. And so to show them that and have them be like, 
wait, is that actually what people think? Right. I think that was the most fun of it was has, that people I made people question um, what the reality of it was. Has that been a prevailing question? Like, yeah. is that an actual? It's I, really funny. I must confess when <laughs> uh, we did the L.A. rap party where, you know, the our cast and crews came together to watch these. Uh, I was like. Oh, maybe that's a thing. Yeah. Like, I was I, I was ready for it. I was like, okay, so there's a monster thing. Yeah. Like that's a thing. Like I'm into that. I'd believe it though. I mean, yeah. the, the, the leave it to us to be like, yeah, there's this thing that's just going to come kill you if you don't get home in time for dinner. Like that's the anxiety of it. Like I mean, that's how you feel. Honestly, if anything's going to like encourage me to get home to, for dinner faster, although I don't need much encouragement to be truthful. Uh, <laughs> You're like food. Yeah, I'm in. Like, I, I think that if I've learned anything uh, from the general landscape of living is that no one can agree on anything except for we like videos of pets walking towards stuff and we all like to have a reason to go eat. Yes. Now, what the food is, is a matter of complaint, probably. Yes. But Constantly. Uh, yeah. So definitely, yeah, I don't need I don't need forces of darkness to encourage me to go to a meal. I'm probably already <laughs> there waiting for everyone else to show up. See, we need the forces of darkness because we have to go eat with our anxious family. And that's, you know, I feel like dinner time for me was always the most stressful part of, like, my day ever. Um, but it's because it's just, you know, I had a family of four. So four people sitting there anxious about everything trying to eat. And it's just this whole, like, yeah, it was a, it was a fun experience. Well, and I think that more than the holidays is sort of the universal like connector of the idea of something like December yeah is this idea um that that time of year also also all time of year but there's something concentrated about the holiday season where when you deal with your family and you deal with whatever other like you know things are going on no matter how good your relationship with your family is holidays are stressful yeah they can be financially draining they can be if you're a queer person sometimes it's not always easy to be like home and uh i i think about like that commonality this idea that you're just like Oh, the the real horror is 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 the dinner itself. Yeah. Um I think for a lot of people that's probably true. Or, you know, the idea that you have to deal with crowds at the mall at the holidays or you have to, you know, anything it, it I think December, not December, but December is a stressful month. Yeah, we uh, should rename the month to December. We should. Just for everybody all over. And for great marketing purposes. Yeah. You're welcome, German producers. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was, it was a good experience. Um, so, again, that's coming soon, later this year. Uh, I, I think that... I believe they're saying December or somewhere around there. And uh, what's next on your horizon? What are you looking to do in the in the world next? Yeah, I'm... Right now, I'm concentrating on... I, I've been pitching a couple things and sort of working on my next spec really and and trying to decide sort of what story I want to tell next, which is, you know, a great answer. Um, but I, I was it's really busy real for a while. It's a real answer. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to pretend I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing something that I'm not. But I'm sort of in a period where I was really busy and everything just sort of opened up. Right. Um, since December's done and I sort of came out the other side of a bunch of rewrites on something and so I now have a moment of silence where I can work on whatever I want and that is uh, 
enjoyable and also terrifying at the same time when you're for once like left alone with yourself again thinking it's, like oh wow okay it's kind of like staring into the void yep. right i think that's the interesting thing especially about our industry and I, it's true of every creator and writer and director or whoever that i know is when we're really busy and working we all we want is a breather. Yeah. And the second we get a breather, you're like, oh my God, I need something to work on. Yep. It's like the great catch 22. It's like, uh, I'll be on set and be like, I just want to be in bed. Yeah. And then if I'm at home, I'm like, I want to be making a movie. Yeah. Why aren't I doing something? <laughs> yeah, right exactly. Now? Yeah. So I'm embracing the sort of uh, the sandbox of it right now. And there are a few things that I'm trying to get the rights to and also just sort of dreaming up. So I've been spending a lot of time watching movies that I love and um, playing video games that scare the shit out of me and sort of trying to get into that space. Well, that lends itself to a question I tend to ask every guest on the show. Since you mentioned movies you love, what have you been watching lately that you like, that inspires you? It doesn't necessarily have to be horror. Yeah. But uh, yeah, what's what's on your view list? Yeah, I, I think something that I recently watched that really sort of blew me away was uh, The Night Eats the World, which is like a, I think it's French. I might be wrong. Um but surprise, it's a, it's another zombie movie. Mm. Um, but I think it just handled it with a a very like fresh sort of brain. It, everything about it felt just different enough, but familiar enough that right. I was like, oh, this is everything I love about these types of films. Um, but it's showing me something I haven't seen before. Um, it's also a, a single person alone in a space. And this living, is your jam. So. I know. I <laughs> I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, yeah, I wish I was that guy. Watch. Um, <laughs> and I loved it. It was great. It was definitely an escapist film for me in a way. Um, so I've seen that. And then as for shows, uh, I, I typically watch comedies, I think, when it comes to television. I think that's sort of my breathing room from everything else I inundate and saturate myself with. Right. But that was, you know, I was finishing up Veep and Barry and things like that. But yeah, I feel like Veep's finale got kind of overwhelmed by the whole Game of Thrones. It was so good, though. I really liked the Veep finale. I thought it was better than the Game of Thrones finale. But that's that's my opinion. We're here for a strong opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But I also am partial to Julia Louise Dreyfus. So oh, she's great. She's in it. I'm yeah. like, well, that's immediately better than pretty much everything else. How many Emmys does she have? She is like she's like the Beyonce of Emmys, right? Like, she is because she. I'm sure she won some for Seinfeld. Yeah, I know that she's got some for The New Adventures of Old Christine. And she's got like I think a ton for Veep. Veep, yeah. Ugh, what an icon. Yeah, I love her. She's great. So I've been watching comedies mostly, but like in the horror space. Um, it's, you know, I've I've actually liked a lot of the more commercial things that have come out recently, which is sort of surprising, but also fun that we're getting good horror movies that are more in the, the collective consciousness right. that are big budget or a more well-known director, but they're still coming out well. I think people are finally allowing horror to be good right which is funny you always hear like it's elevated horror or i hate that phrase it's just it's jack shit and it means nothing because and i i keep i could like think about this a lot lately so i like i really liked a quiet place right and everybody seems to think like oh a quiet place like it's elevated horror but it's not it's just it's a b-movie idea that's executed as an a-movie film 
And it's brilliant because of that. Like, I, I don't think there is such a thing as elevated horror. No, it's because it, it's preposterous. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a phrase that has been placed upon a genre that the industry at large likes to treat as a black sheep. Yeah. But it's only, you know, first off, there's no studio in this town that was not saved by a horror movie. I mean, they you can you can put all your art house movies out there, but your doors stayed open because of X, Y, and Z, and we all know it. And the idea of elevated horror is just to appease a critic or you know an academy voter or whatever, but it's nonsense. That phrase drives me crazy. Crazy, and the other thing, it's like the the sentence that always kind of like sets me on edge is when you mention a movie and someone's like, "Well, I don't really consider that a horror movie." Yeah, and I'm just like, really, and it's. Or it's because it wasn't scary is usually yeah. the main argument. Uh, it, it comes up even with scary movies. I, I, I remember uh, anytime Silence of the Lambs comes up, there's always that one person in the room. Oh, it's a thriller? It's a thriller. Um, I don't really consider that a horror movie. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because what fucking Nancy Meyer movie that you're watching yeah. is, is Meryl Streep eating somebody? Like, t- <laughs> Just like, t- talk to me about that. <laughs> it's true, though. And, and I think that... So I, you know, I'm all for the sort of grand commercialization of sure. great horror films. I'm not so much for the relabeling of it because no. it feels like it's they're trying to go back on everything they've said of like horror is not, you know, it's not yeah. real filmmaking, but but these are arguably real filmmaking, right. and so we need a way to sort of uh, retcon what we've done. Yeah, right. and I think the elevated horror usually it's just an excuse for someone to be like, there's going to be a lot of long stares. Yeah. And silence yeah. and, and sad people. Well, we used to call it art house horror, but right. now it's just elevated horror, right. and which is fine. I love it all. I'll I'm take all the horror, but it's just, it's been interesting seeing bigger horror movies come out that are not just to save the company. And they're more because, wow, this is a vision that people want to make. Um, and they get giant releases and they make a shit ton of money. And like I so I'm all for that. And I've been super into everything that's in the main space. And um, yeah, it's it's nice to feel like you can like a movie, a horror movie and everybody else knows about it. Like I no longer have to be like uh, uh, Cube is like one of my favorite movies. Like right. if you've never heard about it, it's about this. Like you can just say the title of the movie and people typically agree with you now oh no the the craziest thing and i'm sure you experience this to, uh, as do most horror fans is growing up you like these movies and you have the relatives or whoever yeah. that are just like i don't know what any of this is or like i don't want to engage with that and then now after you know decades of having to deal with people be like i don't watch that stuff air quotes uh then you know you get the aunt who never talks to you and she's like well we went and saw us this yeah. weekend and i'm like oh now yeah everybody's into it <laughs> yeah which I mean, is great i i loved us too like i like yeah i like I, that i thought it was great and you know what i'm not one of those who uh it's not like that uh, the the old joke of people being like i was into that band before it was popular right. i'm not that person it's not I'm, a hipster thing i'm actually glad people are going to see horror movies because it's it's about time that the people who were not watching them realize everybody likes horror movies yeah and i think it's something that I would say there was like a shame attributed to liking horror movies, but I think a lot of people felt like that made you lesser than or somehow less intelligent. It's like, I feel like horror was like the bachelor to television where people like you don't admit that you watch that because people are going to look down on you like, oh, that's kind of trashy or exploitative. And so I think that that's finally starting to peel away. It's great. Well, I think there's been a cultural shift, too, of uh, 
any of the things that like two decades ago were considered nerdy. Yeah. I mean, there, there's still people uh, facetiously say nerdy. Yeah. But what was nerdy is now pop culture. And, uh, you know, I remember reading comic books as a teenager and people would be like, you read those? And then then people are like, uh, now, in yeah. 2019, people are like, I'm such a geek. I read comic books. I'm like, you're not a geek. Not when Avengers Endgame yeah. made a billion dollars in opening weekend. Everybody saw Yeah, you're it. just a normal, basic person. Now. Yeah. So it's... Uh, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of fine with the mainstreaming of, of uh, geekery. Like, Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I will say I think that television horror has a lot of room to grow, which is still exciting that sure. there's some sort of landscape or frontier that needs work or has a lot of room to sort of become something new and different. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is an area where I still am and waiting for the thing that's going to grab me or become my favorite horror in that space. Right. I think that's a big part of why I watch comedies and dramas as well, is like, I don't, I haven't seen something yet in, in horror television that, like, has captured me the same way as, you know, a Romero film or or us even or right. anything. But it is funny that at the top of the show you said that your gateway to horror was right, right, and Buffy right. and things like that. Right. And I, I, excluding those. Of course. Of but course. I think that it's something that modern, I think that it's a, a formula nobody's really figured out yet. No, it's tough. I was actually having a conversation on the phone yesterday, and I think it was probably prompted by the discussion of Game of Thrones as a finale yeah. and shows that have lasting impact. And it's interesting when you think of something like Buffy as a show that, of course, over the course of you know the 75 plus episodes here comes up a lot because there is a queerness to Buffy and it is oh, yeah. a, 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 a very strong allegorical horror story. Um, but we're still talking about it. Yeah. Buffy went off the air almost 16 years ago, 17 years ago. It's a show that I still think about like once a week. Yeah. And uh, if not more. And that is power. And I think that shows like that don't come around a lot. So I get this 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 thing where it's like what is the new horror series that's going to have that impact? And maybe to some people it's already here and maybe to other people it isn't. Uh but it's also cool that the shows that came before we're still talking about. Uh, and maybe we don't need to wait for a new Buffy because we've got Buffy. Right. Just rewatch Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of my answer then. Yeah. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. That's my homework. Just always rewatch Buffy. Yeah. Um, over and over and over again until I die. Um, so before we head off into the night, I had one final thing I wanted to talk about. And I bet you forgot I was going to ask you about Uh-oh. this. Something we chatted up about before we went on the air. Tell me about Oprah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, so Oprah was sort of my my first time ever having to speak into anything or be heard by other people. So this is a, a nice sort of closing of that circle. But um, I was on Oprah three times, I think. Um, not totally related to horror movies, but definitely related to being gay and queerness and all of that. So mm-hmm. totally on topic. Um, my family was sort of like set up like a sitcom i guess um my brother is trans uh female to male and um around the same time i had just sort of or i guess a little after since he's a few years older than me but i had just kind of realized like that i was gay and i was going through a pretty intense eating disorder uh and i had like debilitating like ocd and my mom is a therapist so it was just like 
there's like a really interesting family. And right. they had been on something. I think there was like an MSNBC documentary that my mom and my brother did. And so somebody, a producer for Oprah had seen that and then reached out to my family and asked if my mom and uh, my brother and myself wanted to be on it since it was like, look at that setup, you know? Right. And uh, we agreed to be on it. And so we were on... Um, I didn't get a fly to Chicago for the first episode because it was my first day of high school, I think. And obviously it was like, "Ah, I'll go to high school. Yeah. I should do that. Um, Do you regret not going to Oprah in retrospect, though? Well, I got to go the second time. Okay, okay. Which I think was better because I think that it it allowed Oprah to have these expectations of me that that I could meet. Right. Um, Not the other way around at all. Um, (laughs) And so I... Yeah, so the first one, they, like, flew somebody out to come film me at the house, and that was really interesting. And I had a – it's going to seem unrelated at first. I had a bearded dragon that when I bought, they told me it was a female, and so I named it Tinkerbell, naturally. Right. And then five years later, I discover it's a male, but, like, I wasn't going to change the name. And so they were obviously super into the symbolism of, like, this lizard that by accident sort of was, like, misgendered or whatever. Right. And so I, I think I filmed, like, half of my interview with my bearded dragon on my shoulder. And it was just, like, I, I was this, like, big sort of, like, uh, eating disordered, like like chubby kid with a freaking lizard on his shoulder, talking about his uh, <laughs> gay self and trans siblings. So yeah, it was it was a whole lot of fun. So that was the first time. Then the second time, I I got to go out, and that was that was really great. And I got to meet her and sit on the couch and everything. And she held my hand during it. And, oh my god! Yeah, I didn't watch that for a while. Um, but it was just it was nice. Like it was a really good experience, and I think that. My brother and I both got to talk a lot about being an other and and finding our own identities mm-hmm. and sort of learning about like what it means to love somebody unconditionally being, you know, your sibling or your own children. And um, that was a big experience. And so the third time was like a where are they now segment. And I was in f- film school, so I was at Chapman at the time. And they were doing these, like, updates, but they knew I was in school to sort of be, like, a filmmaker. So they were like, do you want to shoot your own segment and send it to us? Um, Which was super cool, but also probably a budgetary restraint. Right. But I was still like, sure, I'll do it. And so I got to film our interviews and sort of do it all based off of a little, uh, like, pamphlet they sent me. But it was cool. Like, I got a director on segment and then send it in and... um, yeah, I think it aired like that same year or something. But yeah, three times. So. so you have a director credit on Oprah. Just a little bit. But that's awesome. Yeah, for yeah. like five five minutes or something like that. <laughs> oh, I love that story. I'm glad I, I'm glad uh, we talked about it because it also kind of is a nice full circle about yeah. the idea of creativity and otherness. And uh, it's it's just a really interesting button to the journey that you continue to be on yeah i it was it was a defining moment i would say i mean how could it not be right it was something that i think i i learned a lot about how to tell a story about myself which Mm -hmm. was you know each of those three times which is it's difficult i mean as a writer you're always sort of in somebody else's space or or telling your own story through 
a different point of view or right. a different name even. And so to have to sit down and talk about myself myself, and try to actually understand myself was, um, I think, important for learning how to like actually tell a story. And also it's probably very uh, informative too about how a story changes. Yeah. Because you, as you described it, it was three different points in your life. Right. And that's... Uh, that's valuable for a storyteller as well, but it's also valuable for people because I think that we tend to, we never feel like we're different or older or whatever inside of our minds. Mm -hmm. But when you go back and look at your own narrative, how things change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try not to ever go back and look at those images because I'm like, oh, wow, that's what 14 year old me looks like. <laughs> Just right there, front and center. Um, but I, it's interesting to also hear yourself talk and, and right. see how that changes over the years, because you sort of get an insight onto how you feel about yourself and your life. And like my brother's always been a really big part of the stories that I tell and you know, I always find myself writing about siblings or or kid siblings or brothers, like even my December short. It's right. it's all very representative of um, that sort of era of my life, which I think was the most impactful because my brother and I were always super close, and his name was previous name was like my first word, and so we've just always had this very um, close connection, and I think that that's influenced like everything that I've done. Um, and he shared a similar love of horror and, and, and things like that with me. But the difference was he was always scared and I was always sort of like the brave one. And right. so that's sort of I think that's part of that journey as a kid of like being that that hero or being that Ben, really, where right. like I could be the person that was strong and there for that other, you know, I'd say my brother was Barbara in that situation. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to I got to be the Ben in a way. And, and I think that a lot of that came from growing up with him and having to sort of protect him in certain ways. And so yeah. I love that you were able to bring it back full circle to remember. I had to. How could I not? And I think, you know, like Ben, you continue to kick ass. Yes. And that's awesome. Jason, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you? Uh, other than like Facebook and Instagram? Um, well, you can tell them wherever you want to point them towards. That's up to you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Am I supposed to like say my like handle and things like that? If you want. If you don't, that's fine. Oh, too. I don't care. Yeah. I mean, it's embarrassing. It was my AOL email when I was a child. But <laughs> my handle for Instagram is at Freak N U Cage, which is at F R E A K N U C A G E. I think I got that from Dude Where's My Car. And they like run into Rob Schneider at like an ostrich farm or something. And they're like, how can we reach you? And he says, you can email me at Freak in a Cage. But somehow Freak in a Cage was taken. And then, well, I'm not shocked, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So I went with NU, which I think was supposed to be some sort of like shoddy answer at uh. uh and so that's now what I live off of. And it's still you, all these still years. Still me. My, uh, my first AOL screen name was a uh, reference to a Prince album. Of so course, I yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 I don't know where, like, Dude, Where's My Car came from. Like, <laughs> I couldn't say that was, like, a defining film for me or anything in my life. I think it was just, like, the only thing on my mind when I sat down to create an AOL uh, anything. <laughs> and so that has followed me around forever. Well, I love that that continues to be part of your legacy, though. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, listeners, please keep your eyes open for December to see Jason's segment before sundown and all the other work that he has done. Uh, and, you know, he is creating and doing things and uh, someone to watch. So 
Thanks again. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.